I am continuing to enjoy my stay with you this week and my work with you this week. And I hope the time is passing not only swiftly, but hopefully profitably for you as we work together in our studies of the Word of God. I've been asked to deal with first principle studies, as you know. And tonight we're going to be focusing on the second chapter of the book of Acts and talk about the conversion of the 3,000. So I encourage you to be getting a Bible and be turning to the second chapter of the book of Acts. We'll be coming there in just a few moments. We're going to allude to some other principles before we get to Acts 2, but we'll get to Acts 2 in just a little bit. Tomorrow evening we'll talk about grace, faith, and works. How do those three things relate together? And then we'll talk about the new birth as we close on Friday evening. All four of the gospel writers record something about the Great Commission. We are perhaps more familiar with Matthew and Mark's account of that, less familiar with Luke, and even less familiar than those three with the Gospel of John's account of the Great Commission. But all four say something about the Great Commission. And we are reminded of how the Gospel of the Great Commission said to go preach the Gospel to every creature and teach them what they need to do, and here's what they need to do. So let's give a summary of what we saw in the Great Commission as we've studied that before. In Matthew's account, Matthew's account said, Go teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so, go teach all nations, and you're to baptize them into relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mark's account said, Go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Luke's account said this, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name beginning at Jerusalem. Now, Matthew's account did not mention belief, though that is implied, nor did it mention repentance. Mark's account did not mention repentance, and Luke's account did not mention belief or baptism. Those are not three separate commissions. Those are not three separate directions of what to do to be saved that are contradictory to one another. But they're all saying the same thing and they must be harmonized. So what we have in the Great Commission, a summary of that would be, you go teach all nations, and when you teach them, they should believe and repent and be baptized, and then they are saved. That's the harmony of the accounts of the Great Commission. When we come to the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a book about conversions of people who did the very thing that was taught in the Great Commission. What we have in the book of Acts is we have an inspired commentary on the Great Commission. How do you carry forth the Great Commission? What is to be done in preaching the Great Commission? Well, the book of Acts demonstrates that for us. It is the divine commentary thereof. It is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 2. Whereas Isaiah 2 said the law would go forth from Jerusalem, and it did. It began at Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. There is more teaching on the conversion of mankind in this book than in any other portion of the Old or New Testament. This book tells us how men were converted to the Lord. This book tells us, that is the book of Acts, tells us actual cases of conversion. It tells us the, uh, the type of people that were, were converted. For example, it would tell us of some common people that obeyed the gospel, and then there are some of high rank that obeyed the gospel. The book of Acts also tells us not only the type of people, but numbers that were converted. Sometimes there were single cases of conversion, like the eunuch, the Ethiopian treasurer, 
that he was the only one on that instance that was baptized. But here are others, for example, in our text tonight, there are 3,000 that obeyed the gospel. But furthermore, the book of Acts tells us what they were taught and what they did. Here's what these people learned. Here's what they understood. And here's what they did in response to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. Acts chapter 2 is about the conversion of 3,000. That's our focal point in our study this evening. Up to this point, that is up until Acts 2, the gospel had only been preached in promise. And beginning in Acts chapter 2, it is beginning to be preached in fact. For the first time, it is being preached in fact. This book or this chapter is called the beginning. That is, the events of this chapter are called the beginning. You might turn over to Acts chapter 11 and in verse 15 just for a moment and make reference if you're so disposed to mark in your Bible at Acts 2. That Acts 11.15 calls Acts 2 the beginning. Peter talking about what happened in Acts 2 and what happened in Acts 10. He made a comparison between the two and he said the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. What's he talking about? What happened in Acts 2? So this is called the beginning. This is where the church began. This is where the gospel began to be preached for the first time. This is the first case of worship on the Lord's Day. And on we could go with a number of things that began in Acts chapter 2. Some have referred to Acts chapter 2 as the hub of the Bible. Everything prior to this is pointing to it beginning here in Acts chapter 2. Everything about the church beyond Acts 2 points back to the beginning here in Acts chapter 2. So this becomes the hub over which everything centers and everything turns that is found in all of the Old and New Testament. So again, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1, we see that the events took place on the day of Pentecost. What was the day of Pentecost? It was one of three annual Jewish feasts. It was observed on the 50th day from the Paschal Feast, that is the Passover Feast, seven weeks from that point. And what they would do, they would number seven Sabbaths, 49 days, and add one, making the 50th day, which means it would fall on the first day of the week. So the events of Acts chapter 2 are taking place on the first day of the week. Because that's when the day of Pentecost fell. It is also called the Feast of Harvest, Exodus 23. The Feast of Weeks, Numbers 28 in Leviticus chapter 23. Now it fell in the third month of Sivan, which is late May for us. And if you look at this comparison calendar, the outer circle is our calendar, starting with January, February, March, April, and down here in May, comes to their third month. And this is when Pentecost fell, which would be tantamount to our late May. And that's when the day of Pentecost fell. And so we're talking about the springtime of the year. The day of Pentecost fell on the first day of the week, and that's when the events start in Acts chapter 2. So let's open our Bibles, if you don't already have one open, to the second chapter of the book of Acts, and we're going to work through the chapter and talk about what took place in Acts chapter 2. We want to start by talking about the account, and then toward the end of our study, we're going to come back and give a summary of what we saw in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we call it the beginning because that's what Peter called it, the beginning in Acts chapter 2. Now what takes place in the beginning? Four things develop in this chapter. We have verses 1 to 13 talking about the reception of the Holy Spirit. That is, the apostles received the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the promise of that in just a moment. In 14 to 36, we have Peter preaching his sermon on this occasion. And then we have in 37 to 41... The response of the multitude. How did they respond to that sermon? And then the last section of the chapter is the disciples continued in the apostles' doctrine, 42 to 47. What we're going to watch for is the kind of audience that we have, 
what they were taught, what they understood, and what they did. We're looking at the conversion of the 3,000. Let's start with this. Let's talk about the reception of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 2 beginning in verses 1 to 4. What we have in verses 1 to 4 is the reception of the Holy Spirit and the apostles begin to speak in tongues. <clears throat> now let's remember back in John chapters 14 and 15 and 16. That's not chapter 14 verses 15 and 16, but those three chapters in chapter 14, chapter 15 and chapter 16. The apostles were promised that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would come and would guide them into all truth. Back up one chapter, just for a moment, to chapter 1 and in verse 8. That when you, this is the Lord speaking to the apostles, when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come up on you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Now what's he saying? The Holy Spirit is going to fall upon the apostles. He's going to come upon you and give you power. Whereby you're going to go forth and you're going to preach the gospel. Now verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. <clears throat> First of all, who is the they? Whoever the they is, it's those who received the power of the Holy Spirit and were empowered to speak in tongues. Who were the they? Many think it was the 120 back in Acts chapter 1 who had gathered in the upper room. Let's see. Let's begin now at verse 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. You understand from your English class that a pronoun always refers to its nearest antecedent. Let's go back now and see what the nearest antecedent is. Back in chapter 1, verse 26. Remember, chapter divisions are supplied by translators. Verse 26. And they cast their lots, and it fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven, you might underline, apostles. He was numbered with the eleven apostles... Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, they who? The apostles. That's who he's talking about. The apostles, when they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they, they who? The apostles were sitting. And there appeared upon them. Them who? The apostles. Appeared upon them, divided tongues as a fire, and set upon each of them, that is, the apostles. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It wasn't 120, but it was the apostles that were receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, just as promised in John 14, John 15, John 16, and in Acts 1, as well as Luke 24. So they're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. They did receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And the text says they begin to speak with other tongues. We'll define tongues in a moment. That's how the day begins. The apostles are receiving the power of the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues. Now beginning at verse 5, I want you to notice that the multitude is amazed at that. Now why were they amazed? Well, they were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout Jews. There were Jews who were devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember, this is one of the three annual feasts where all the Jews come to Jerusalem. And as they have come to Jerusalem, notice that verse 4, verse 6 rather says, When the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Because everyone heard him speak in his own language. What does it mean to speak in tongues? Well, that wasn't some kind of hysteric jibber-jabber where no one understood what was going on. But it was a language that was intelligible. How do we know? Well, let's go further. Look at verse 6. We heard every man speak in our own tongue, or language. Verse 4 had said they were speaking in tongues, but it's called a language at verse 6. 
Now notice at verse 8. We'll come back to verse 7 in a moment. And how is it that we hear them speak in his own language? King James says tongue. It was an intelligible language in which he was born. Now back to verse 7. They were all amazed and they marveled. Why did they marvel? Are not all these which speak Galileans? The amazing part was that these men were from Galilee. By the way, all the apostles were men of Galilee, Acts 1.11. Not likely all the 120 were of Galilee. But all the men who were apostles were men of Galilee, Acts 1.11. Are not all these which speak Galileans? And yet we hear them speak in our own tongues. It was amazing that these men had not studied this tongue. They had not studied all these languages, and yet they can speak in our language. Now I want to get ahead of ourselves and then get down to verse 11. We'll come back to the verses in between in a moment. I know it was an intelligible language because they said that we hear them speak the wonderful works of God. How'd they know? How'd they know? How'd they know it was the wonderful works of God? When you hear somebody speak jibber-jabber, can you say, I know he's speaking the wonderful works of God? No, you don't know what he's saying. You don't know if he's saying the wonderful works of God or he's saying, I'm deceiving you by the power of the devil. You don't know what he's saying, do you? But they knew these were the wonderful works of God. So when they were speaking in tongues, they were speaking in an intelligible language. Now let's go a little bit further. Beginning at verse 9. There were people who were Parthenians and Medes and Elamites. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocian, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Egypt and parts of uh, our men of Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our tongues, our own tongues, our own language, the wonderful works of God. Now they were amazed because verse 12 says, they were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, whatever could this mean? In other words, what's the meaning of all of this? What's going on when we hear them speaking this? And someone offered an explanation at verse 13. There were others who mockingly said, they are full of new wine, meaning they're drunk. These men must be drunk. To be speaking like they are, these men must be drunk. Now here's what I want you to notice what we've learned so far. I'll learn something about the audience. We're going to learn some of this in a moment. But let's get a picture of the audience. The audience was just pictured before us. In verses 1 to 13, what I learn about these men, we're going to see later that these men are in sin. That is, the nation is in sin. The men and women are in sin. How do I know? Well, when I get to verse 14 beginning, or actually verse 21 later, he's going to say, you crucified the Son of God. But I want you to notice that they're in sin, and yet they think they're okay. Much like religious people of our own day. I say they think they're okay because they were Jews. They had come to Jerusalem for to worship. They had come to Jerusalem for one of their annual feasts. They think they're in the right relationship with God. They think they have a covenant relationship with God. They are people who have some knowledge. They know something about the Old Testament. When he talks about David, they know something about David. They know something about the Psalms. They knew something about the promise of the Messiah. They knew something about the promise of one coming in Psalm 16. They just did not understand it was Jesus. So they have some knowledge. They are people who think they're okay, and yet they are in sin. Let's go a little bit further now. I want us to look secondly at Peter's sermon now, beginning at verse 14 through verse 36. Peter begins his sermon with an explanation of the events beginning at verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and he said, Men of Judea 
And all those who dwell in Jerusalem, be it known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. Logic tells you that they're, they haven't had time to imbibe enough that they would be drunk. This is not the normal thing for men to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. This is not at the late hour of the night. This is nine o'clock in the morning. These are men are not drunk as you suppose. Well then Peter, what is it? Well look at verse 15. Or verse 16, this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel 2. What had Joel 2 said? Well, Joel said something was going to come to pass in the last days, verse 17. Please take note of the fact that the last days does not refer to some few days just immediately before the end of time, as our dispensational and premillennial friends think. They think it has to do with just something that's about to happen just, just before the second coming and before the end of time that's going to give us a signal that the end is near. When war breaks out in the Mideast and someone gets all excited and says, that's the sign of the end of time and we're going to be in the last days. Peter said he was living in the last days. This is that, he said, which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. And Joel talked about something taking place in the last days. It has reference to the last dispensation of time. But beginning at verse 17, here is his quotation from Joel 2. What you're seeing here, Peter says, is the Holy Spirit being poured out just like Joel had prophesied it would take place. Now remember I've already told you, John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. Acts 1, he said it would come upon them. Luke 24, he said it would come upon them. But Joel had prophesied that long ago. There are three things I want you to notice about the prophecy of Joel. Let's read beginning at verse 17. Beginning at verse 17, he said, It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, just like Joel had prophesied. What's going to take place when the Holy Spirit is poured out? Notice at verse 17, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Notice prophecy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Notice four things. He talks about prophecy, verse 17. He talks about visions, verse 17. Dreams, verse 17. And prophecy, verse 18. One of the works of the spirit was he's going to work in revelation in revealing the will of God. That's what prophecy did. That's what visions did. That's what dreams did. All right, here's the second thing he said. Beginning at verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be dark, turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, we could spend a great deal of time analyzing and what we might think that means, but he's talking about the confirmation. Or how do I know? I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath. That is, the Holy Spirit is not only going to work in coming upon those upon he came, those uh, that he was poured out upon. It was not only for the revelation of the will of God, but it's also for the confirmation of the will of God. Evidence, when the apostles went forth to preach and teach, they confirmed it with miracles and signs and wonders following. We saw that from Acts 15 a little bit earlier. Now look at verse 21. There's a third thing that the, the Spirit would be involved in. 
And this is where Peter now turns his attention to what they need to know. They need not be so concerned about, are these men drunk or not? You don't need to be so concerned about whether or not you understand fully this pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But you need to understand what the Holy Spirit was coming to do. Look at verse 21. Are you reading with me? It shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Holy Spirit was going to work toward men's salvation. So the Holy Spirit would be poured out. This is part of the fulfillment of Joel 2. What was Joel 2's prophecy about? Joel 2 was prophesying the Holy Spirit would work in revelation, in confirmation, and in salvation. We see all of that right here in Acts 2. The will of God is being revealed in the preaching of Peter and the other apostles. It was confirmed by the miracles, speaking in tongues, and they taught the means of salvation. How do I know the men were saved? Verse 47. All three things were accomplished right here in Acts 2. But let's go even further. Now I want you to notice, beginning at verse 22. Let's back up, though, before we do that. I want you to go back with me to verse 21. And you might underline, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's just introduced a thought to them. That if you call, you'll be saved. We'll define that in a moment. Underline that, mark that in your Bible. Let's go now to verse 22. Beginning at verse 22, Jesus is raised from the dead. That's the thrust of his sermon. There are three points he makes in his sermon. And let's see what they are. First, he said, the one that you crucified is raised from the dead. Look beginning at verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. You might circle the word here. You need to listen to this. This is what you need to pay attention to. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by miracles and wonders and signs, which he did, uh, God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken and by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. Now we'll finish that reading in just a moment. Let's get the picture. Start at verse 23 and go back to 22. At 23 he said, you have taken. Here's where you're guilty of sin. He convicts them of their sin by telling them, you have taken and by your lawless and your wicked hands you crucified and you have slain the Son of God and you put Him to death. The evidence that you did wrong in that, God had already given you evidence that he was the son of God. How? Look at verse 22. He was a man who was attested by God by the miracles and wonders and signs. When Jesus was on earth, he worked the miracles and wonders and signs that gave proof of his claim that he was the son of God. You should have had no reason at all for rejecting him. So when you rejected the Messiah, you rejected the Son of God, even before you crucified Him, you were rejecting one wherein there was evidence that He was who He claimed to be. But what you did, verse 23, is you crucified Him. So you're guilty of sin for rejecting, verse 22, the Son of God, and crucifying Him, verse 23. More evidence? Look at verse 24. God raised Him up. The very one you put to death and was put into the tomb, God raised him from the dead, giving ultimate evidence that indeed he was the Son of God. Because it was not possible that he should be held by that. Now, he said, you crucified the one that God raised from the dead. Now, beginning in verse 25, he begins to give evidence that he was raised from the dead. He doesn't just assume and assert He was raised from the dead. Just take me at my word. He was raised from the dead. Everybody accept my word. But he gives evidence of that. And before we're through, I'll give you the three evidences of that. But let's notice beginning at verse 25. 
He said, for David said concerning him, and he quotes from Psalm 16, that I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and he is at my right hand that I should not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was made glad. Moreover, my flesh also rejoiced in hope. Look with me at verse 27. Are you reading? Because you will not leave my soul in Hades, neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That is a prophecy in verse 10 of Psalm 16, quoted here in verse 27 of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How so? When the body and the, when one dies, the body and the spirit are separated and the spirit goes into the Hadean realm and the body goes into the tomb to be corrupted. To decay, in other words. Now go back to verse 27. You will not leave my soul in Hades. It's not going to stay there. Neither will your Holy One see corruption. The body will not corrupt. But in other words, they're joined back together in a resurrection. What he's saying is David prophesied of the resurrection. David foretold of this. How do we know, Peter, that that David was not talking about himself? Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and is buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Get his point? Somebody was raised from the dead. David wasn't talking about himself. How do you know David was not talking about himself? His tomb has his bones in the grave. But go and find the tomb of Jesus and it's an empty tomb. David wasn't talking about himself. He argues from the empty tomb in verse 29. Fulfillment of prophecy. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn in an oath that of the fruit of his body... According to his flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He just quoted the prophecy and he gave the proof and the evidence that it wasn't talking about David, it's talking about Christ. But he's not through. Look beginning in verse 32. This Jesus is now exalted as both Lord and Christ. This Jesus has God raised up of which we're all witnesses. Witnesses are credible. Men are put to death on eyewitness testimony, aren't they? You could be found guilty of a crime on an eyewitness account if the witnesses are credible witnesses. He said we're credible witnesses. And there are many witnesses. First Corinthians 15 said there was over 500 who saw him at one time. More about that in a moment. But look at verse 33. Therefore being exalted by the right hand of God and had received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out that which you now see and hear. You want to know how this all took place this morning? All the speaking in tongues that you heard about, it was because Jesus was raised from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of God and He's poured out the power of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. That's how you're seeing that. David did not ascend into the heavens But he himself says, the Lord is at my right hand. Do you make my enemies your footstool? Now verse 36, to finish this this sermon. What does he say at verse 36? He said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. You might underline the word know or circle the word know. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Perhaps there was more to the sermon than that, but that's all that is recorded for us. He begins with an explanation of the events, and he focuses on the resurrection of Christ giving evidence. And I want you to notice what the three evidences were. Did you catch them? This, there was a prophecy concerning this resurrection. Psalm 1610. This is a fulfillment of prophecy, number one. 
There is the empty tomb, verse 29. And verse 32, there are eyewitnesses. He didn't just assume the resurrection. He gave three evidences in his sermon that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. So let's talk about what they heard. We talked about the audience a moment ago. Here's what they heard. They began with a conviction of their sin. The gospel message convicted them, you're guilty of sin. You've rejected the Messiah. And here's the evidence that indeed he was raised from the dead and he is who he claims to be. Here's three evidences of that. There's prophecy concerning that. There's the empty tomb. And there are eyewitnesses to the account, that, through the account that he was raised from the dead. Now, let's go to another aspect of the story. Beginning at verse 37. Let's talk about the response of the multitude. Beginning at verse 37 through verse 31, 41. Beginning at verse 37, I want you to see that they ask what they needed to do. Let's talk about the question at verse 37. When they heard, did you catch that? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted by what they heard, not by how they felt. That's an interesting point, isn't it? They weren't caught up with emotion and had this feeling run over their bodies and they just got all excited. And because of how I feel, I want to know if there's something I can do for the Lord. They were cut to their hearts. Read with me. Look at verse 37. When they heard this. What had they heard? They heard a message about the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gave abundant evidence thereof. Having heard that, they were cut to the heart by what they heard. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Do for what? Do for what? Well, the question must be about what should we do about our sin? Because he began on the note, you're guilty of sin, verse 23. And when Peter answers, he answers what they need to do for the remission of sins. That's what their question was. What do we need to do to take care of this sin we have in our life? You've made us well aware. We're cut to the heart. We did reject the Messiah. And we now know who he is because you've presented evidence to us. And we need to know what we need to do. That was the question. The answer begins at verse 38. What was the answer? Then Peter said to them, repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And the answer to the question, he said, you need to repent and be baptized. Why? For the remission of sins. Quite often, our religious friends will argue that this for the remission of sins means because of the remission of sins. But, oh, yes, we need to repent and be baptized, but we need to be baptized because. The word for sometimes can mean because of. I was arrested, someone might say, for speeding. I was arrested not in order to speed, but because I speed. That's what the word for means, they argue. But to remember, you're putting jail for punishment in order to receive punishment. For can mean because of, and it can mean simply that in the direction of or in order to receive. What does it mean in this passage? Well, remember, whatever baptism is for the remission of sins, whatever direction that for is going, repentance is going in the same direction. 
repent and be baptized for the remission of sins? Or do you repent because you've already been forgiven? Or do you repent in order to be forgiven? But let me show you a parallel for what it may be worth to us. Let's turn back to Matthew 26 and in verse 28. Matthew chapter 26 and in verse 28. Jesus shed his blood, he said, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Sound familiar? That's the same expression in the English and in the original. Identical expression. Now, Jesus shed his blood because men have already been forgiven. Oh, no, preacher. Oh, no. Jesus shed his blood that men might be forgiven. All right. Then we are to repent and be baptized that we might be forgiven. Because wasn't that the question in verse 37? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise, this promise of salvation, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, is to you and to your children, and as many as our Lord our God shall call. But then I want you to notice at verse 40. I like the King James wording of this. He said, save yourselves from this untoward generation's, or be saved from this perverse generation. With many other words. This isn't the full extent of the message. But it's a summary of the message. With many words, he exhorted and encouraged them, save yourself, he said. In other words, take responsibility and respond to what you've just heard. I've just told you to hear the gospel. I've just told you to believe the gospel and repent and be baptized. And he's urging them to do the very thing that he just told them to do. Well, let's notice what the reaction was at verse 41. Verse 41 said, they that gladly received the word were baptized. Those who gladly received the word were baptized, and that day 3,000 souls were added unto them. Perhaps some of you have been in an occasion where you'd see more than one or two or three respond to the gospel invitation. The most I've ever seen was 23 one night. And some of you are old enough, probably you can remember a time when you may have seen 50 or more respond to the invitation. Can you imagine 3,000 responding the same day? How amazing that must have been. 3,000 responded to the invitation. Now, I want you to notice. We saw the audience. And we know what they were told in the sermon. What were they told here? What was the reaction to the multitude? When they said, what do we do? Here's what they were told. They were told to repent and be baptized. The audience was in sin. They were religious. They thought they were right. They were given evidence that they were in sin. They were focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when they wanted to know what they needed to do, they were told to repent and be baptized. And that's exactly what they did. Now, let's see how that harmonizes with the Great Commission. Remember, Matthew said, go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. Mark said, go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes in them is baptized shall be saved. And Luke said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name beginning at Jerusalem. This is exactly what's taking place in Acts 2. Exactly. Now, if you haven't already marked this, please mark this in your Bible for future study as you talk to your friend and neighbor. Turn to Acts chapter 2. They were told to hear. Did you get that at verse, verse 22? Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Listen to this message. I'm going to, before I tell you anything else, you need to hear the message. And then he begins to preach. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Let's circle that. That's the same as believing. How do you know that Jesus is both Lord and Christ without believing Him? And how do you believe in Him without knowing He's Lord and Christ? 
He's telling them to believe exactly what the Great Commission had said to He that believeth and is baptized. That's exactly what he told them to do. Look at verse 38. You might circle and underline, repent and be baptized. That's exactly what the Great Commission said to do. And verse 38 says it's for the remission of sins. Verse 47 says they were saved, which is the same thing. But that's exactly what the Great Commission said. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Now, let's go back to a verse we talked about a moment ago. With those things circled in your Bibles. If you've marked in your Bible, verse 22, verse 36, 38, and 39. Hear, know, believe, and repent. Let's go back to verse 21. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? In the religious world today, when someone talks about calling on the name of the Lord, That in order to be saved, you need to call on the name of the Lord. And they might even cite Acts 2, verse 21. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they'll tell you that to call on the name of the Lord means you pray through for salvation. You go to the mourner's bench and you beg the Lord to save you. And you'll be overwhelmed with an experience. And you'll know the Lord has saved you. And what you need to do is get on your knees and you need to beg the Lord to save you. And you pray and you pray. And pray the sinner's prayer. I won't tell you, you won't find that anywhere in the pages of the New Testament. But this passage will define for me what it means to call on the name of the Lord. But before we do this, I want to look at two other passages that are going to help me understand that. So let's go to Acts 22 and in verse 16. Then we'll come back to Acts 2. I want you to see three passages that define calling on the name of the Lord. Let's go to Acts 22 and verse 16. Ananias told Saul, remember when... Saul was, uh, Ananias was sent to Saul. Ananias was told, for behold, he prayeth. Remember that in Acts 9? He was already praying. And when Ananias gets there, notice verse, 20, verse 16. Are you reading with me in Acts twenty two sixteen? 16? And now why tarriest thou? Why are you waiting? When you're still praying, you're waiting, you're tarrying. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Are you reading now? Calling on the name of the Lord. When he was praying, he was not calling on the name of the Lord. But when he would arise and he was baptized, he would be calling on the name of the Lord. What did it mean? It just simply means to obey the gospel. Let me give you another passage where that is explained. Romans 10. Romans 10 and in verse 13. The context develops this for me. Look at verse 13. The argument is that anybody and everybody could be saved if they would. And so at verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The same quotation from Joel 2 that Peter quotes in Acts 2. Now remember that. Whoever calls shall be saved. Now let's get down to verse 16. His point is, they didn't do what they could have done. But he doesn't say that in those exact words. He says it in different words. How does he word it? Look at verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Do you get the point? Paul's point in Romans 10 is, they could have called if they would. They didn't do that. But he didn't say they didn't call. He said they didn't obey. But he's trying to show they didn't call. Per the context. You might take the word call at verse 13 and circle that. The word obeyed at verse 16 and connect them because they are synonymous in this context. It tells me what it means to call on the name of the Lord. It just simply means to obey the gospel. I said there are three texts, so let's go back to the third in Acts chapter 2. Let's develop from the context that calling on the name of the Lord simply means obedience to the gospel. You say, how do you know? Let's go back to verse 21. 
Go back to verse 21. Verse 21 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember that? Let's drop down now to verse 47. Go over to verse 47. Verse 47 says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It says they were saved. Go back again now. Verse, 30, verse 21. If they call, they would be saved. Verse 47 says they were saved. So whatever they did between 21 and 47 is what it meant to call on the name of the Lord. Doesn't it? See what they did. They heard, they knew, or believed, they repented, and they were baptized. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. And when someone tells you, you need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and you need to pray the sinner's prayer, that's not what they were in Acts 2. That's not what was in Romans 10. That's not what was in Acts 22. These people were told to call, and then they were told to hear, know, and repent, and be baptized, and then it says they were saved. That means they had called. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. The context defines that for me. But let's go even further and finish the chapter. I want you to notice, fourth of all, what these disciples became. Verse 41 says, they that glad to receive the word were baptized. These disciples continued in the apostles' doctrine. So let's get a quick summary, verses 42 to 47. How about them now that they are Christians? Beginning at verse 42... They followed the apostles' doctrine. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the text said. That is, that's their direction now. Now that they've become obedient to the gospel, they are following the apostles' doctrine. They're not following the creeds of men. They're not following the wishes of the church. They're not following the directions of, of a council or a synod. They're following the apostles' doctrine. That is, as has been revealed... By the Holy Spirit that was talked about earlier in the sermon. But let's go even further. Notice at verse 42. They continued steadfast. They were dedicated. They were devoted. It's what God expected His people to become. Verse 42 describes the fact that they worshipped. These are elements of worship at verse 42. Remember this is the Lord's Day. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. And so they're partaking, and I take the, the breaking of bread to refer to the Lord's Supper there. Different from the breaking of bread at verse 46. More about that in a moment. But that they are engaging in worship. This is the Lord's Day. This is the first day of the week. Remember the Pentecost fell on the first day of the week. So they're worshiping now. They feared. Look at verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders. And signs were done through the apostles. That his people were amazed and, and they had an awe for God. And at the same time, they had a fear of displeasing God. And so they were filled with fear. But not only that, they took care of the needy. They were caring and they were benevolent. Good verse 44. Those who believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as every man had need. They shared with one another. They cared and loved one another. They served daily. Christianity was a daily religion for them. Look at verse 46. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house. They spent time together. That's a social common thing that they did one with the other. And finally, I want you to notice in verse 47, they grew. They praised God. They had favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church on a daily basis because they're teaching others the gospel and sharing it with them just as they had learned on this day. What I want to get before you is a picture of what did they become? These people who obeyed the gospel, they didn't just obey the gospel and quit. 
They just didn't obey the gospel and then be left to sink or swim. They followed the apostles' doctrine. They were dedicated. They worshipped. They had the fear of God in their hearts. They cared about one another. They served God daily and they grew. They were disciples who were active Christians who worshipped and were dedicated and continued to serve the Lord faithfully. Now let's spend the rest of our time and just take a moment to give a summary of what we just saw. To get a clear picture of what happened in the conversion of the 3,000. What I've tried to do is outline the chapter and develop that thought for you. But I want to raise three questions here. First of all, what were they told in Acts 2? What were these people told? There was a sermon that was preached. What were they told in that sermon? Well, they were told they were in sin, first of all. You have taken by your lawless hands of crucified and slain. You rejected the Son of God. Secondly, they were told Jesus was raised from the dead. I think if you'll take every sermon recorded in the book of Acts, every one of them will center around the resurrection of Christ. Every one of them centers around the resurrection of Christ. When we sit down with our friends and neighbors to teach them the gospel, we ought to begin with the resurrection of Christ, the foundation and the basis of Christianity. It's not true now, but about 30 years ago, I looked for some material, some tracts to hand out on the resurrection of Christ. And at that time, there wasn't a single tract published among brethren There are some now. 30 years ago, there wasn't a single track among brethren on the resurrection of Christ. The heart and core of Christianity, nobody had published anything on that. They were told about the resurrection of Christ. Get familiar with the resurrection of Christ and arguments for the resurrection of Christ. And talk to your friends and neighbors about the resurrection of Christ. And they were told they needed to repent and be baptized. Three basic elements. There is a need that you have. Here is evidence of Jesus being the Son of God. He was raised from the dead. And here's what you need to do. Second question. What did they understand? I have no doubt that those who obeyed the gospel that day didn't have a masterful understanding of everything in the Old Testament. I doubt that every one of them who of the 3,000 could take the book of Ezekiel and, and give you an exegesis of the book of Ezekiel in a way that they, you could just well understand the book of Ezekiel. What did they understand, though? Here's what they understood. They understood they needed to be saved. They got that message because they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? We have a need and we need to be saved. Secondly, they understood Jesus to be the Son of God. They understood that. And thirdly, they understood that they needed to repent and be baptized. They've understood the very thing they were told. The third question. How did they respond? They gladly and they willingly obeyed. And what I want to suggest to you is when when people hear the gospel and they understand the gospel, they will gladly and willingly obey. In other words, they did exactly what we saw in the Great Commission. That's where we started. The Great Commission said, go teach all nations, baptizing them. Go teach every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name beginning at Jerusalem. And these people heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They repented and they were baptized for the remission of sins. Verse 47 said, they were saved. They did exactly what we found written in the Great Commission. So what have we seen in our study tonight? Well, we've done, done a, a survey of the account of Acts chapter 2, the conversion of the 3,000, and looked at a quick summary of what they were told, 
what they understood and what they did. There may be one or more present tonight who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. You may be in the condition of those who came in Acts chapter 2. Religious. Have some understanding of Scripture. Maybe not realizing that there is a need, but now you've come to recognize there's a need in my life. And I need to respond to the gospel. Would you do so tonight? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith? And be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?